0: Brooklyn, New York. I'm Adam Teeter.
1: And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal.
0: And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. You like how I did that? It's very slow. Very. I know. You, yeah. you got a
1: little little, little tempo uh, yeah. to your delivery. I feel like I've, I've definitely heard from a few people that uh, there's a little speed talking on our, on both of our ends. So well, we're just chilling
0: I now. Mean, now we're just taking it chill. Um, what's yeah. up, man?
1: You know, uh, gosh, it's, uh, I, so here, here's a question for you that that's kicking through my mind. Cause when you all hear this, it'll have been the day before, but we're recording this before mother's day. And like,
0: we're recording it on Cinco de Mayo.
1: We are recording it on Cinco de Mayo, but I don't, I don't feel like I have a lot to say about Cinco de Mayo, even though it's a, even though it's a big, you know, sort of drinks holiday, we can, we can talk about it if you want. But, but to me, I'm like, mother's day is like, and I, I was just having some, flashbacks to Mother's Day brunch in restaurants that I've worked in over the years. And, like, Mother's Day was maybe my least favorite day to work in all of the days in the restaurants. Like, (laughs) it was was such a just a shit show. Because it's like anything that's a family day like that is always going to be bad. Because, like, you know, lots of families do stuff because they feel obligated, even though they don't really want to do things together. And, like, you know, it's always, like, you know, people don't make reservations until the last minute, and like it's just a mess. Uh, yeah. And I just have been, I've been very, uh, very glad to not have to deal with that. Yet another holiday that's come off, that's come by that I'm like, I don't miss being in a restaurant for this one. <laughs> did you? What did you guys do for Mother's Day growing up? Was it a big deal? I know. I mean, like I got my mom
0: a card. Mm-hmm. Is that in my off air? Like, I mean, yeah, I'm on I got my know. mom a card. We like, we probably did like fun, like breakfast and bed stuff, but we were never like the family like that went out to eat for that. Gotcha. For that occasion. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like a big, like, we had to make brunch plans and stuff. I guess when I was older, um, you know, when I first lived in New York, I think, like, we took Naomi's mom – well, that wasn't when I first lived in New York. But anyways, at some point, we took Naomi's mom out, like, once for a Mother's Day brunch in New York. Like, But she came in from, like, Pennsylvania. But, I mean, it was never, like, a big thing. I mean, the day that I assume – it is very hard to work in a lot of restaurants is today, which is Cinco de Mayo. Oh
1: but well, yes, definitely.
0: I, I mean, but it's also like the Super Bowl for tequila. So, like, I mean, there's just yes. so many tequila sales. Although, I also wonder what will happen with that because I bet a lot of that partying will spill over into this weekend. Um, yeah. because it's you know it is on a Wednesday, and so the, usually the revelry is not as high on the day as it would be if it were on a Thursday or Friday. Which means, yep, I think we're going to get a lot of that partying over the weekend. Um, of people feeling like they need to, you know, drink lots of tequila and stuff. Yeah, man. Wh- what have you been drinking?
1: Well, it's funny, you know, uh, not tequila over the last couple of days, but uh, sort of in uh, in a vein that you've talked about a lot uh, in the last few months, I, uh, I've been kind of going through my, my bourbon collection lately okay. and, and uh, we got kind of things put away in the new house and, uh, and have been, t- I, I, bought some stuff kind of as a present to myself before we moved being like I'm not gonna open any of this until we move well you know you gotta gotta take care of yourself sometimes too uh and uh and so yeah I've been kind of opening a few things here and giving them a taste I mean one of the one of the ones that's stood out to me as it has in the past is I think you and I've even maybe talked about it on the podcast before a little bit is the Weller Special Reserve it's a great bottle which is a very nice bottle. Uh, I believe it's a. Uh, it's been on the VinePair top uh, yes, bourbon list a couple times. Yes, it has. Uh, and uh, yeah, that one. And then actually, uh, not a bourbon, a rye. I, I tried. I don't know if you are familiar. Basil Hayden has pre- released a couple of these. Like I don't know what they're what you would call them. They're not quite bottled cocktails, even though the one I'm going to talk about really reminded me of a bottled cocktail. But they're sort of these like basil hayden rye blended with other things like some canadian rye whiskey and then in like they have a dark rye that's blended with port and then a caribbean rye that's blended with rum i have not tried that one yet although i do have a bottle of it it was interesting that the the dark rye was like drinking a manhattan which was cool but i kind of was like maybe i'd rather just make my own manhattan and then i can like you know get the exact ratio right. i want it was it was interesting to me because it was not labeled as a cocktail, you know, it was labeled as rye, but it's definitely got enough port in it that you taste it. Not, like, in a bad way, just, like, there's definitely something else besides whiskey in the bottle, so. Yeah. I don't know. What have you been drinking?
0: So, hmm, a few things, but I have a fun story.
1: Oh, please, please.
0: Thank you. So... (laughs) <laughs> you know, I just want to tell my stories. Uh, so like last it's, week, that's what we're here for. Yeah. Last week. Thank you all for listening. This is like therapy for me. I don't even have to pay for, uh, you know, anyone <laughs> to, to talk to. I just talk to all the listeners. So um, last week went to a restaurant. Uh, it was actually like a, it was a business meal, but we went out to dinner um, to potentially talk to someone who we were thinking about maybe bringing on board. And, we went to this restaurant and we we're like, let's start with a cocktail. And I have a question: What do you think this was on the cocktail list? It said Negroni Bianco. Okay. And so I was like, oh, I love a, I love a. What do you think it was, Zach?
1: Well, I mean, my guess would be a white Negroni. I mean, so right, she's g- like,
0: yeah. I was like, I love a white Negroni, right? And that's all they said. Didn't say like what was in it. It said Negroni Bianco, whatever. And so we ordered them. We all we ordered three, you know, because there's three people at dinner. And Uh when they came, the person who took our order didn't bring the cocktails the actual bartender did, and they were red. Okay. And I was like, hey, I think maybe our order got put in incorrectly. We ordered the Negroni Biancos. And he was like, oh, this is the Negroni Bianco. We make it with white vermouth. Okay. And I was like, that is a mistitled drink. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, we thought that these were white Negronis. And to his credit, he was super nice. And he was like, oh, I could see how you would have thought that, which also I think means this has happened before. Yeah. And he was like, I'm going to go ahead and make you white Negronis. Keep these. Okay. Which I thought was cool. But I was also like, so this has
1: happened before. Maybe rename the drink. (laughs) Yeah, like I mean, it's pretty hard because cause you're literally just it's literally just white negroni. Like it's not like a fanciful name that maybe you misinterpreted. It's like that's all that bianco means in Italian is white. Yeah. So you're not you were like I would have been equally surprised. And yes, that seems like a failure of cocktail naming.
0: And maybe negroni. And like I never went home to Google to see if the negroni bianco is actually a thing. And when it is a negroni bianco, it is with. No. Like when you search Negroni Bianco, it comes up and Dante's Negroni Bianco is a white vermouth.
1: Yeah.
0: In a bunch of – we have a, a Negroni Bianco. So these, there's, it's funny though. But then when you look – when you go to the only people that, who it's not white when you're searching, mm-hmm. first Google search, the only person is of freaking course the New York Times. Who it, is, <laughs> it is red and they're using yeah. white vermouth. They're the only ones calling the rest, calling it a Negroni Bianco, using it with white vermouth, and then they're saying use Campari. That is so stupid, so stupid, Mm. so stupid.
1: Anyway, (sighs) well, so (laughs) yeah. At least we don't have a guest from the New York Times this week, so we don't have to feel bad.
0: No, I come on, guys, label your cocktails correctly. Um, So, anyways, we have a really interesting thing to talk about today. And uh, it is hot off the presses. Um, But what we're going to talk about today is counterfeiting when it comes to alcohol. And the reason we're going to talk about this um, is that for those of you who are are not aware, Acker Merrill, who is a very uh, famous – the nation's actually oldest wine merchant, uh, was caught yet again uh, this past week selling counterfeit alcohol. So to give the full backstory, Akramaril is an an auction house and a, um, a wine retailer and liquor retailer who got caught up in the selling of counterfeit wines through Rudy Kruanian, who, for those of you maybe have watched sour grapes on Netflix or just aware of this, unloaded a large majority of the counterfeit wines he was creating through
1: them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they said they learned their lesson. (laughs) <laughs> Let me add and a well, point of context here too, which is a point of context here is some of the very last, like well after Rudy was suspected of being a counterfeiter by the sort of and, and a lot of his wines, other auction houses wouldn't touch. They still brought them in and sold them. Like this wasn't a they were duped totally and didn't have any idea. And then the thing, the scandal broke, and it was like, oh, how could we have been tricked? It was like people knew by that by that point, so certainly close to the end before uh Kurniawan was arrested. That like some shady shit was going on, and they Akamaro still worked with him, which is the reason why this whole thing is not, uh, like this is strike whatever. Not not that's the right. first yeah. time this has happened.
0: So so most recent thing that's happened is basically we all are pretty much aware right that the bourbon market's out of control especially with certain certain producers i mean pappy's the one most people know but now a lot of stuff that's produced at buffalo trace is just as in demand including a bourbon that you know a few years ago i remember i could find for $70 a bottle which is colonel e h taylor and colonel taylor uh, right now, it, the four grain bourbon, which is a bottle that was for sale at Acromarrow, can be found at a lot of retailers for around three thousand three hundred dollars a bottle. Right, so this now obviously it's MSRP, which is crazy, is seventy, but a lot of retailers yeah. are now getting away with selling it for three thousand dollars. Right, so Acromarrow was selling a bottle of Taylor for only a thousand, which all of a sudden should have been a red flag, right? That like yeah. if the market is demanding three and is somehow selling it for a thousand. That's an issue. And inside Edition actually who broke this story went in and bought the bottle. So someone must've tipped them off that they were selling, you know, these whiskeys for a lot lower prices than they should have been. And they then sent the bottle to Buffalo trace and the technical director of Buffalo trace, John Medley went through the bottle. And first of all, noted that immediately when he looked at the outside of the bottle, it was packaged incorrectly. The code was wrong. Uh, it was missing a special mark it was supposed to have. And then actually the strip stamp over the bottle was backwards. The And then when they tested the liquid, the alcohol proof was wrong. So basically yeah. it was completely counterfeit. Um, yeah. And so I, the, the question is, first of all, you know, why are they still doing this? How how, how the hell is Ackermarell still selling counterfeit stuff? But then also, if they're doing it and they're a very famous you know auction house and retailer, you got to imagine a lot of people are selling counterfeit, especially when it comes to bourbon.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it's an area where my understanding is one of the one of the challenges with with bourbon and and with other rare whiskeys like certain scotches and things like that is that whereas with wine. Where there is still there's have certainly been as mentioned before these issues of counterfeiting and and they still exist. There is a a longer history of sort of tracking tracking these um, products and like you know first growth Bordeaux has been Grand Cru Burgundy have been maybe not the kind of ridiculously priced items that they are now but they've been you know expensive highly prized wines for quite a long time. And so there's a oh, just a longer institutional knowledge and, and better understanding of kind of what what is out there, what these older bottles should look like, what real bottles look like, and what fakes might look like at this point. And the problem with bourbon in particular is the bourbon market was so poor. There was such a, so little demand for especially old bourbon. It's part of the reason why, you know, all of these products were so freely available. It's why, you know, when I interviewed um, Ray Thompson, the author, about his book about Pappy Van Winkle and the distillery. I mean, shit, they took years of production of Pappy Van Winkle and blended in with Crown Royal. Like it's insane. It's like, this is what the state of the bourbon industry was 30, 40 years ago. So the idea that, you know, a lot of these bottles are, were, are, are still out there is a little hard to believe, but it's also the case that it's just, you know, I, I, I get that at the distillery, they might be able to, to do this kind of verification, but even the auction houses, I think even, even, Knowledgeable consumers, there's just less widely available or even specially held knowledge about what are the indicators of a of a counterfeit that are easier or that are not easy to detect but are detectable and and it's a relatively new market, and so of course there's just a flood of of you know people trying to take advantage of it
0: yeah i mean i think I think the thing that's hard with bourbon and with with wine like what so what makes these things so counterfeitable right? Why is it so easy? I think first of all because just like with art right it's really hard to once once the bottle leaves the you know the distillery or the winery it kind of gets lost right on, on its travels like there are people that have qr codes you know there's people talking about the blockchain i don't really know how you're going to use the blockchain to do this but you know there's things that people think are solutions but it's it's sort of like the bottle gets lost, then it maybe winds up in someone's cellar. Then you know it goes to another seller. Maybe it doesn't go through an auction house during the second sale. Maybe it's sold you know via one on one you know person to person. Like maybe you're a collector, I'm a collector, and you're like, hey Adam, I'd like that bottle of you know Taylor, and I'm like, okay Zach, I paid 150. I looked it up average price is three thousand, but we're buddies, so I'll give it to you for fifteen hundred or whatever, right? Like that could happen. Um, then you know then maybe it ultimately does go to an auction house. And so that's why, like, sort of it's always been fuzzy to begin with. But then on top of that, with a lot of these very, you know, uh, coveted bottles, especially when it comes to spirits and old wine, right? At some point, sort of their defining characteristic is their quote-unquote smoothness, right? It's like they're old and they are very uh, easy to drink. And so and a lot of these bourbons yeah. are really old in age in terms of how, how long they were in barrel, right? I don't mean they're old in terms of that, like, you know, they might have been, you know, they were bottled in the 50s. That's also probably true, but I'm talking about just how long in barrel. And then for the wines, okay, obviously the vintage year is really, really old. And I think what's been proven by Kirwanian and others is that that flavor profile is really easy to fake it's yeah. really easy to mix certain kinds of wines together to create something that tastes like an old bordeaux which i know people are be like no it's not man it actually is uh you know it's really easy to create things that taste like very old bourbon to i mean so here's here's something that's crazy that's that's completely separate but uh i think is is instructive so for this year's uh you know top spirits tasting one of the whiskeys that we tasted that was delicious, but, you know, was insane was the boss hog seven. Okay? okay. The boss hog seven is 20 plus years old liquid. And then what they do is they age it in multiple different kinds of wood, right? So I think it okay. sees, oak, it sees teak. It sees, it sees a bunch of different kinds of wood barrels and the results when they t- when they take that already super old rye and then age it for a few months in different barrels, is it actually creates a liquid that if you didn't know that it was Boss Hog, if you didn't actually um, taste the you know the liquid and and see the bottle get open and maybe even get it at you know the farm or whatever, you would think it was a flavored whiskey. Huh. It tastes flavored. It's not. Okay. That's the beauty of it. That's what makes it so interesting. That's why that's why whiskey aficionados love it, but it tastes like it was flavored because so many of these woods they've used have imparted so many different flavors that it's just rich and flavorful. You know, it almost tastes like chocolatey with a little, you know, with the okay. vanilla. So, you could fake that with flavors.
1: Yeah. Right. And I think another piece here too and this is true I think for both the whiskey and is especially true with wine is the other reality is that very few people have much experience drinking these really, really high-end, very old bottles, right? Like, you know, to say even that there's a palate and a flavor profile for, you know, 70-year-old Bordeaux or super-aged whiskey, it's a little hard to say because most people don't don't drink that. And so there's, I think, a lot of willingness. I mean, there's this moment in that documentary you mentioned, Sour Grapes, where like, you know, some of the people who were du- were duped... Still refuse to kind of believe that they were, and they like they're kind of convinced that they were, you know. I don't know. They 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 are so bought in, and and maybe both literally in terms of financial terms, but also just emotionally invested in it. And it gets to this other piece of this that I really want to I want to get into, and I'm curious your thoughts on, which is you have these sort of two types of people or or kinds of people who are victimized in these uh, quote unquote victimized in these sorts of crimes. You have the you know. Uh, who was it, Bill Coke or was it Jim Coke? I don't remember. Whichever one of them, yeah, was a the massive collector who who got you know swindled. And there, it's kind of like, huh? Well, you know, let's I, also not forget. Sympathies.
0: Let's also not forget that prior to that swindling, there was a swindling of the Jefferson bottles. Yes, yes, and um, none and other. I, than, now I'm
1: blanking on that guy's name, but um, he, yes, he another, was he was he
0: was a guy from Germany, I remember. But yes, none exactly. other than the owner and found the owner of Wine Spectator was swindled. Yeah, if you've read that book, he. Buys a bottle, yeah, at billionaires
1: like, vinegar, yeah,
0: and then he uh, drops it at a party because he's showing it off, yeah, and he drops it and it bursts everywhere. I mean, and he was un, up and unhappy at the time, but it actually wasn't a Jefferson bottle, so because they weren't real. Yeah. But yeah, anyways, you're right. So okay. there's, there's the very wealthy and the wine collectors that get duped, which which yeah, I mean, sure, you know, and others, and,
1: and then and then adjacent to that are people, and this is where the the comparison to art becomes really interesting, and this conversation becomes interesting, which is. There's also the people who are buying these bottles entirely for their perceived value and their potential to greatly continue to appreciate in value. And there you get into this really, really weird world that's almost kind of mind-bending to me, which is like, you know, someone buys a counter, what what turns out to be a counterfeit bottle of E.H. Taylor or, you know, 61 Margot or whatever, and it's fake, but they're never going to open it and taste it. And frankly, they might not have even an idea if they were to open it and taste it, whether it was faked or not, because yeah, it's maybe a decent quality fake. Someone has put some effort into it and they may pass it along to someone else, sell it to someone else, whatever, give it as a gift, et cetera, et cetera. And you get into this place where it's like, who exactly is, we've, you know, and now God, I mean, I'm sure you've seen these things too. I've gotten pitch emails about them. So I'm sure you have, Adam, these like, you know, people who tell you like, hey, for, you know, you can invest and own a 10th of a bottle of one of these wines as an investment and it's just, it's like owning a piece, you know, some tiny fraction of a piece of art, a share yeah. in, in a famous, you know, piece of art. Or something. And it, it just kind of takes all this stuff to its sort of lo- somewhat logical conclusion, which is like so many of these products, whether they're wine, you know, spirits, et cetera, have become so removed from their presumed initial purpose, which was to be enjoyed by people like by drinking them. And now they're so collectible they hold so much value they appreciate in value because other people believe they're valuable or will appreciate in value or whatever that that you are kind of in this bizarre almost like head trippy landscape where it's like does it actually matter if it's forged like if everyone believes it's (laughs) valuable you know i don't i'm not an nft like you know person i don't understand you know bitcoin or whatever but like it feels not too distant from that whole kind of conceit right if everyone believes it's real
0: then maybe is it just real and who cares i mean yeah. The, the crazy thing is, yeah, you're right. Like no one would have caught this if a reporter like hadn't gone in and you know basically said, we're gonna get this tested, uh, because because this yeah. price just seems fishy. Um, you know, most people would have just assumed that it was real and probably the person buying it at Acrimeral would have potentially been buying it as an investment, right? Feeling like it was an underpriced, an underpriced commodity and they were going to hold it. And already the, you know, the average sales is around three. They're getting it at one. So either they immediately flip it on eBay or something, or they hold it for a while. And yeah, yeah then it becomes a, like, what, you know, what is kind of the point? And look, that's the, that, this is the big backlash that, as you said, is happening in the art world now too, where there's, there's a huge backlash against collectors who are buying and then warehousing. Right. So like an artists don't love it either. Right. You know, they're, first of all, both with wine and with art and they claim that the NFT market is trying to fix this, but I don't really see how, but the producer never sees the, the additional gains. The artist never sees the additional gains. Right. So the art is sold. It goes out into market, you know, through the gallery, there's a split, usually very advantageous to the gallery. And then. You know the collectors who makes the money down the road. The artist sees none of that, yep. and as the and as the art and and that sucks for the artist. And as the artist, you know, can you know maybe grows in stature. Someone who bought in early, they make a lot of money, and the artist never you know sees that benefit. Some you know that's why you have some artists who like, you know, never really see the kind of financial windfall they should see. And the same happens for yeah. wine and 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 bourbon and. I think, you know, that's that is where you have some people who are trying to fix that. So what's interesting I think about, you know, the whistle pig again is that they are they price the the boss hog at what they think the collective the collecting market would pay for it at that moment. So they don't they don't okay. sell it at 150, they sell it at 450 or something, right? But yeah. that's what they think it would be flipped for. So that's what they're selling it for. Yeah. And what that's caused is it's caused there to be a still massive market for Boss Hog, but not a, a massive secondary market. Yeah. And so then I also wonder if that would be the same for you know some of the like Colonel Taylor and stuff because there are places where you can still go and there's the the liquor store who's initially selling it for seventy, and someone's buying it yeah. and flipping it up the chain. And when yeah. when there are all this money to be to be made the counterfeiting is gonna happen. And so I would just, you know, encourage you to like if you know, you should be very, very wary of buying second of bottles from the auction market. Like you should and and from people who auction. Like you should just know that's a risk. You know, like you're much better off if you want to own a bottle of Pappy or whatever, you're much better off trying to go to like the Pennsylvania State store and getting lucky, or, you know, certain retailers around the country who just happen to have one bottle or whatever, than going to, you know, Mm -hmm. a retailer who's known for selling secondary bottles because you have no idea where those bottles are coming from. And you should also be very wary if you're buying online, right? Like if you have some, if there's someone online who's telling you that they have a bottle of, you know, Pappy or Lafitte you know, 1983 yeah. or something. I don't know if 83 was even a good year, but 85, 85 was a great It was, year, our, right? it was
1: our birth year. So it, was, it had to be a good year.
0: I know. But, um, <laughs> you know, those types of things, right? If you, you should do your homework and you should know that you yeah. can't always fully do your homework. Um, it's yes, somewhat of a risk. Sure. And so if you are buying to drink, you should be aware of that. If you're buying to hold and flip, I kind of think like you said, Zach, like, more power to you, I guess. Like it's, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it, as long as you did enough research where like, Look, the thing that's the thing that's crazy about the Taylor is just some of the stuff that that, you know, Buffalo Trace saw immediately is just feels like lazy counterfeiting, right? Like, how was the sticker on backwards? Like, how was the label done wrong? That's the easy shit, you know, like, yeah, that's the shit that, as you said, you should it should be harder to catch because like. Someone should have to open the bottle to realize it's not the real juice, the fact that like all, you know, they knew it was fake the second they looked at the bottle is crazy to me. And I think Kirwanian was pretty good at faking the bottle. He was, you know... But it, even then, you, you see,
1: liquid. yeah, but you see also, exa- you saw examples of that with his story where, like, there were wines, you know, that were, uh, like, single vineyard, you know, Burgundies, you know, Grand Cru Burgundy's made by a producer whose family hadn't, at that point in the, you know, in that vintage hadn't uh, either produced that wine or they had, not own that vineyard yet or something like there's some examples where it's like, well, you know, the descendant of the winemaker, you know, the the current proprietor is like, well, we never made that wine. So it has to be a fake, right? Like, and with, and with wine, that's very, very like, it's, it's actually pretty easy to do because the records, unless you're at the winery are pretty, they're not widely available online. I want to add one last thing to this, which is, which is kind of coming back to this whole other thing. It, It goes in addition to this question about whether it's right for you know the speculative market to be the one that's that's benefiting as these things appreciate in value there's also a you know god you know me a little bit of a romantic there's sort of an aesthetic argument to be made here or something a, a romantic argument to be made that like the other thing that's really unfortunate about this is it disincentivizes people from drinking these things right totally. like the this the, the shame especially with wine, but true with whiskey too is like it has a shelf life. It will eventually not be enjoyable to drink. And when we're talking about these products which are ostensibly the best of the best, right? Like these things are becoming incredibly uh expensive because they are viewed in the wine and whiskey communities as, you know, some of the pinnacles of of the of the form. And yes, some of it is also maybe they're quite rare and that's its own, you know, level of of value. But but the idea is at least in theory that what what's in the bottle is the thing that is remarkable. And as the price goes up and up, you know the the um, the incentive is to not to never open it to to hold on to it to to resell it eventually and you know i think it's a good instructive lesson for all of us we've talked about this before on the podcast that that even for those of us who collect at a much lower level than than these kind of eye popping numbers you know eventually you should hopefully want to drink the wine right and and if you wait forever it will never you know you will eventually miss your window and, and I don't know that there's a solution to be had in this. I mean, like I said, the speculation is uh, valuable and people are in it for for reasons that have nothing to do with enjoying wine or whiskey. But, but, you know, if any of you listening are in this realm, like, you know, drink, drink the wine, drink the whiskey or shit, send it to Adam and me. We'll drink it. We'll tell you all about it. I know. Um, we'll, we'll We'll do it on the podcast if you want. But like, it is. It is a. It does make me sad that so many of these, you know, these these wines and whiskeys that are in such demand and are such small production, in the end, so often never really get consumed. You know, they sit in someone's cellar for decades or even you know centuries, and then at some point, they're just a museum piece. They're not. They're not the thing they were intended to.
0: be. No, I completely agree. I mean, look, it's the same. You know, like I said earlier, it's the same backlash you're hearing now in the art world. That you know, these pieces were not meant to sit in someone's temperature-controlled warehouse. In you know, in I mean, if you go into one of these uh, these holding facilities for art, you know, the art is like slipped into like a a Do you know what I mean? Like it's like
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's slid in and it's temperature-controlled and nothing can touch the art and it's completely protected. But like that's the artist did not intend that. The the artist intended for the art to have impact. They intended yeah. for the art to be seen and appreciated and felt. And that's the same with the winemaker. The winemaker intended the wine to be consumed and processed and enjoyed, and and trans and and something that transformed you. Same with the whiskey. Like they're, these distillers weren't sitting around with these recipes, being like, "I'm going to put this in a bottle and it's never to be opened." Yeah. So I, yeah, I do think it's some. Um, it's you know, if you want to participate in the auction market because you want to get you want to get some wines that you have no other way to get or some whiskeys you have no other way to get, I understand. But if you're just doing it as you said to continue to like. You know, flip and you know whatever. It's a different, just a different kind of thing entirely. And and then, yeah, I guess I don't really feel so bad for you if the thing happens to be counterfeit because you're never going to taste it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Ugh, Zach, fun talk- fun conversation. Um, love to hear what you guys think out there. Shoot us a line at podcast at com. Always open to hearing your uh, your thoughts and also suggestions for other topics. And Zach, I'll see you right back here next week. Sounds great.